Amen. All right, we're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to start this morning in verse 22. So, Father, we come to your word just desperate to, to hear your voice, to know more of you. Lord, we know that this scripture is the, the infallible spoken word of God. And so we come just to hear, to fellowship and commune with you as we study it. Lord, we lay our hearts bare. Come on, church. Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name to shape us. Trim away anything from our lives that brings you dishonor. And we ask that you'd make us better disciples of Jesus today. We want to leave this place full of the Spirit, full of vision, to see this region discipled into the gospel of Jesus. We love you with all our hearts. Come on, there's no other lover for us. You alone are worthy in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 As we move towards our text today, we've, we've talked a lot in the past about C.S. Lewis's trilemma. His trilemma being that Jesus is either, um, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Meaning, he calls himself God, he heals the sick, he raises the dead. Um, if he's not God, then he's a liar, is what C.S. Lewis argued. Um, you could argue that he was a lunatic. You could argue that he was just insane, um, that he made a lot of claims, but he wasn't quite quite sane. But the only other conclusion Lewis said was to acknowledge that he's Lord. Like he said he's God, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, he says that he'll be crucified and then raised from the dead, he, make, he gets up from the grave. The only other conclusion is that he's Lord. That was C.S. Lewis's kind of classic argument um, for Christianity because many liberals in his day were saying Jesus is just a good teacher. C.S. Lewis is saying there's no way he's just a good teacher. If he's just a good teacher, then he's a liar because he said that he was God. Now, Mark's gospel is working towards what, what we'll call the hinge, the, the primary portion of scripture by which the whole gospel swings. And remember, we've said that that chapter is chapter eight, where Jesus asked the disciples, the apostles, who do you say that I am? Remember, they said, others say that you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah, one of the great prophets of old. But Peter said, I say that you're the son of God, Messiah. And the whole gospel is trying to make you ask the question, who is he? And, and every person in this room, I don't care where you came from, how old you are, what your favorite snack is. At some point, you've got you've to answer that question. You are, you are forced to answer the question, who is he? And what you do with the answer to that question will change everything about you. Totally change everything about you. What we'll see in our passage this morning is that Jesus' family is starting to call him insane. Okay, he's got thousands of people following him. He's driving out demons. He's healing sick people. And his family is getting kind of embarrassed. And so they start to tell everybody, he's just crazy. He's just insane. What we're going to find today, on the other hand, is that the we've seen so far in the text that Pharisees, local Pharisees, are resisting Jesus. But today, we'll find scribes coming from Jerusalem the elites to resist Jesus. And they're going to call Jesus a liar and filled with demons. Literally, they call him, uh, they say he's doing his miraculous works by Beelzebub or Satan. So we see his family saying, he's crazy, just ignore him. We see the religious elite coming from Jerusalem saying, he's demonic, just ignore him. But, But all the while, Jesus is being poked and prodded from every angle. He tells us today in the text, 
He's plundering hell. And so in other words, the scribes from Jerusalem will say, you drive out demons by demons. Jesus says, no, you don't realize that I'm actually plundering the kingdom of hell. So on one hand, darkness is rising up against him. He's being called crazy. He's being called a liar. He's being called filled with demonic spirits. And on the other hand, he's just emptying hell out. And this is actually a beautiful picture of what your Christian life will be if you come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord. On one hand, as you grow in discipleship, um, Jesus says, if you'll follow me, you'll have to pick up your cross. There's a thing about picking up a cross is that it's heavy. Picking up a cross means you wear the scorn that Jesus wore as he was walking towards uh, the Mount Calvary. As Jesus is walking towards his crucifixion, he's being spit on and mocked, beat. To carry a cross means that you too will be spit on, mocked, maybe even beat. And it's not comfortable. But the beauty of carrying a cross is that there's resurrection power at the end of the thing. And when you start to think about all of the last day's prophecies. So Joel says, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And Peter echoes it in chapter 2 of Acts. In the last days, God will pour out his spirit. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. On one hand, we're promised that as we approach the days, the return of Jesus, we will have a great outpouring of the spirit that will only increase. Revival, souls will come to know Jesus. It'll be beautiful and powerful. On the other hand, Paul tells us we're promised that in the last days there'll be a great falling away. We are promised that in the last days many will gather around them false teachers to scratch their itching ears. There are two prophecies that are coming to pass at the same time. One is the harvest is ripe, and the other is there are tares that are growing. And and so, again, as we come to the text, I'm going to show you that, um, I hope to show you, that Jesus' family, again, is calling him insane. His brothers and sisters are trying to silence him. Um, if you haven't had that yet in your Christian life, you will. People will belittle you. You're not gonna, you're not gonna follow Jesus passionately and with a devoted heart and everyone just celebrate all that you do. You're not gonna stand for righteousness and choose the scriptures on matters like abortion and everyone just say, we love you. No, you're going to be spit on. You're going to be mocked. You start declaring Jesus is Lord, therefore he should be obeyed, and you're going to be flogged. But again, the promise is that if you put your hand to the plow and keep pushing, you'll see hell plundered. Christianity is not easy. Nowhere in the scriptures are we promised that if you follow Jesus, it will be easy. We are promised that it's fruitful. Now, let's go to the scripture and I'll do my best to unpack what I'm yakking about so far. So we're in Mark 3, we're going to start in verse 22 and we'll read through verse 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, he's divided and he can't stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. 
unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed may he plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Remember, we closed last week. In verse 21, so we started in 22 today of chapter 3. Verse 21 says, when his own people heard of this, heard that he was drawing great crowds and healing the sick, they went out to take custody of him, his own people, meaning his family. For they were saying he's lost his senses, or he's lost his mind. So remember thus far, as we studied Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus has crazy crowds following him. Hundreds and thousands of people being healed, having demons driven out. And all the while we've seen that at every corner, Jesus is bringing people deliverance, peace, physical healing, and life. And every step he takes, he's mocked and critiqued by Pharisees. He was critiqued for, uh, remember, for healing a man on the Sabbath. He was critiqued because he ate dinner with tax collectors. He was critiqued because they didn't fast on the right day. They were feasting. Like everything Jesus does is is critiqued. And today, as we turn to, to, to verse 22, we, we find that, that Jesus is now not being critiqued solely by local Pharisees or local scribes, local teachers, but there's actually a developed plan or strategy to send from Jerusalem, coming down from Jerusalem, the kind of elite scribes to pronounce judgment on him in front of everyone. So if you back up, remember um, in verse 6 of chapter 3, when he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, do you remember what happened? The Pharisees went out immediately, you remember? And they began to plot along with Herodians, who hated each other, on how they can destroy him. I think Mark wants you to see that the local Pharisees and the local Herodians, who were kind of political in nature, kind of a political party, they plotted together against Jesus and what they did was they sent to Jerusalem, the religious capital, to get the best teachers they could find, to come down. You're always coming down from Jerusalem because it's a mountain. They come down from Jerusalem and rebuke Jesus. Now, the language is really clear that the scribes who come down from Jerusalem are the elite. They're, they're a delegation of scribes come from the religious capital with all of their authority to renounce Jesus. And what they do is fascinating. These, you've got to, you just have to assume that they're not dummies, right? I don't think they're right by any stretch of the imagination, but you don't excel to the leading scribes in the nation without having a little bit of IQ. All right, just get that out there. And what they do is they come down from Jerusalem and they see the ministry that Jesus is doing. Sick people are healed, withered hands straight, lepers cleanse, blind people see, Lame men walk. They see many people who are being delivered from demons. A lot of demons. A lot of demonic deliverance in Jesus' ministry. So what they, what they do, they're smart men, as they say. Number one, there's no way that we can deny that something's happening through this man's ministry. 
We can't deny that there's power that he has. We can't try to tell the, the leprous man that he's still got leprosy. His skin's clean. We can't try to tell the blind man that he can't see anymore. So what we'll do is we'll pronounce to everyone that the power by which he does these miracles is the power of Satan himself. They can't deny the works, so they deny the source of the works. They say he's filled with Beelzebub or Beelzebub. Now, scholars struggle with that, that word too. Um, but it, but it seems to mean, um, it's a play on the name Baal, who was the, 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 the Philistine god who's kind of demonic. And they would call him Beelzebub to say that, um, he was, he was not Lord, but he was only Lord of flies or insects. And so it, it was kind of an insult to Baal. And so the name is also interchangeable with Satan. So they say, you have Beelzebul causing all these miracles to come to pass. And Jesus responds, how can Satan cast out Satan? So those two words are obviously interchangeable in Jesus's mind and, and language. So what we have is the long-awaited Messiah of, of Jerusalem, the prophesied son of God, coming to broken sick people, demonically oppressed people, to poor people, Loving them, healing them, caring for them, eating with them, setting their feet on the right path to follow God, bringing them to righteousness. And what we have in response from, from Judaism's elite scholars is, this must be demonic. What a shame. You need to hear me say it is an evil thing, an evil thing to claim that the works of the Holy Spirit are the works of hell. Jesus first responds by making this argument. Every kingdom divided against itself will fall. Um, civil war is not a good strategy for national strength. I don't know if you know that. Let's just put that out there. Jesus is saying, I, I think we can make the case that thousands of people at this point in Jesus' life have been delivered of demonic powers. And Jesus is arguing, Satan's kingdom has fallen apart. Thousands of people who were tormented with demons are now in their right minds serving God. Call that what you want, but I wouldn't call it demonic. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A second argument he makes is beautiful. He says, unless a strong man is first bound, you can't plunder his house. What does that mean? We, sometimes we read this and we think, we think that the text is saying that, that, that Satan binds us so that he can plunder us. That's not what the text is implying at all. Jesus is saying, I've bound Satan, and I'm plundering his kingdom. He's saying that, like, if you want to defeat the Philistines, you better deal with Goliath first. If there's a great, tall, strong man, you know, like me, in a house, and you want to come in and steal his goods, his gold, um, he's not just going to let you. You're going to have to tie him up first. And Jesus is implying, I've got him tied up, and I'm plundering his house. And, and I, and I think, uh, Craig, Craig Keener, um, I think is where I, I got this theme from, but, but teaches that at the, at the wilderness temptation, when Jesus is tempted by Satan on three occasions and Jesus continually resists Satan, remember the scripture says that the spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. So Jesus stands before Satan, tired, hungry, weak, and resists Satan and, and says, I'll only pledge allegiance to God, period. Now we've talked about before, but that's clearly, uh, the, the opposite. The, the contrast of Adam living in the garden, full, fat, and happy, 
and falling to temptation. Jesus reversed what Adam did even while he was tired, hungry, and weak. And I think what Jesus is implying is that at the wilderness temptation, the strong man was bound. And I think what he's teaching is that um, at the at the death and resurrection, his holy heel will crush the serpent's head. And and so the strong man, the strong man is tied up. And Jesus says, you look at my ministry and say, oh, he's demonic. But you don't realize I'm raiding hell. And this is where we want to, we want to think about this, this, this portion, the blasphemy portion carefully. And, and there should be a little bit of fear struck in our hearts for sure. Jesus says, you call the power by which I drive out demons Beelzebub. You can blaspheme the son of man. In other words, he says, you can spit on me. You can throw stones at me. I'll offer you forgiveness over and over again, but don't you dare talk about the Holy spirit. And, and it's as if, like, like a, like a good, a good dad, right? Who says, you know, throw stones at me, but you touch my kids, I'm going to knock you in the head, right? Or a good husband who says, spit on me all you want, but don't you dare put my wife's name in your mouth. And, and Jesus is, is shared eternal forever intimacy with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forever friendship, perfect fellowship, perfect unity, Father, Son, and Spirit have shared from eternity past, as long as your mind could possibly imagine. They have always been perfect, united, sharing love, nature, and one essence. And Jesus says, you can blaspheme me, but, but you talk about the Holy Spirit, we're going to have a problem. Now, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I don't think it means, shoot, y'all give me a second to talk. It's my turn to talk. You've been talking all week. It's my turn. It does not mean to say GD. It's not taking the name, the, the name of the word in vain in the sense that we think as modern Christians. Um, I don't think saying GD or taking the words name in vain, cursing God's name is a good thing ever. I think that's wrong. Um, but th- that's actually not what taking the Lord's name in vain even means. Um, a good study of that phrase, it literally means that God places his name upon Israel. Um, the priests have the name of Yahweh on his head. Israel is, is marked, sealed with the name of God. To take God's name in vain means to be sealed with the name of God and then to live your life in such a way that causes people to spit on him. In other words, the same idea would kind of be to call yourself a Christian and live evil and then for people around you to go, if that's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with that. That would be taking the name of Jesus upon your life in vain, not carrying it well, not bearing it well. Now, I don't think what Jesus is talking about when he talks about blaspheming the spirit has anything to do with your speech necessarily. It it seems to be a, a resistance, a stubborn, continual resistance to the work of the Holy Spirit. A, a stubborn, unwilling heart to soften and acknowledge what God's doing to allow God to work in your life. Here's a, there's a thing about the Holy Spirit. And again, I'm just talking now. Sometimes theologians talk about the Holy Spirit as being quiet. I don't know if that's quite the right phrase to use. Because um, the scripture talks about the Holy Spirit speaking at times. But he's definitely the less forefront of the Trinity, right? And the Holy Spirit has a little bit of mystery to him, right? He's a mysterious being. He's a person. He's not a power, but he's mysterious. Quiet might not be the right phrase, but but not always forceful. 
And, and to, to know the spirit, you've got to be a little bit sensitive in your heart and you've got to learn his voice through time. And you've got to read your scripture and, and make sure you're discerning things according to the word of God to know what is the work of the spirit and what's not the work of the spirit. But if you just boldly with a stubborn head begin to declare what's God and what's not God, and you begin to call the Holy Spirit's people and his work demonic, Jesus says, I ain't got no time for that. He calls it an eternal sin, not an eternal judgment. It's actually kind of interesting language. He doesn't say you'll be eternally judged for blaspheming the Spirit. He said it's an eternal sin. And I think that means that the sin leads you to damnation. The sin causes you to resist and reject the Holy Spirit. causes you to push away from the Holy Spirit. You can have all the religion in the world. You can show up to church with your tie on, your shoes tied up right. You can eat the right things. You can be disciplined. You can know the words to every song. But if you're constantly resisting the work of the Holy Spirit to touch your heart, it's an eternal sin. Now, there's an interesting nuance here. And I need you guys to hear me closely because what I'm about to step into is a, is a theological doctrinal discussion that if, if you don't listen closely, you might misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus is forever God. He always was God. He always will be God. He was God throughout his human existence fully God and fully man. At the incarnation, he took on humanity. There was what the theologians call the, the hypostatic union. His humanity and divinity came together to make one person. He took on humanity, but he didn't lose his divinity. He was always God. So we want to make sure our Christology is right. We're, we're not teaching that old word of faith preachers used to talk about Jesus becoming God or coming into the anointing, which made him God. That's actually heresy. Okay. He was always God, period. But while Jesus ministers, the Holy Spirit partners with him. Okay, so they share the same nature and same essence. They're both eternal. They, they've always been power in the same, same essence. But, but Jesus ministers alongside the Holy Spirit. He's working with the Holy Spirit. And so when they say, you drive out demons by Beelzebub, he says, how dare you talk about the Holy Spirit by which I minister? Okay, so it's not that he's not God and can't do it on his own, but it is that he walks in perfect unity and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is at work in his ministry. Now, there's some nuances to that. One, when you become a Christian, you do not become God. Okay, you don't become Jesus-like. But what Jesus does do when you become a Christian is he gives you the person of the Holy Spirit to empower you, right? And so as Jesus is imparting authority and power to the apostles, to cast out demons, he's not making them carry deity in the same way that he's deity. You understand what I'm saying? He's giving them the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is doing works by the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to give you the same Holy Spirit. You'll never be God. We're not Mormons. Just throw that away. That's just st- stupid. Um, you'll never be God. You're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, into his character. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll put my spirit upon you and in you. And by that spirit, we'll do the same works. So the nuance that we just stumbled into was that Jesus is actually ministering by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know that it's worth trying to, trying to section out the Trinity all the time. Does that make sense to say, this was Jesus and this was Father and this was the Spirit Certainly, Jesus was on the cross. Father was not on the cross. Certainly. 
But as they work and minister and renew creation, there's a unity in what they're doing. I don't know that it's worth trying to box everything out. I'm just saying that Jesus did things by the power of the Spirit. He says, here. And then he says to the church in, in Acts 1, he says, Matthew 28, you're going to go into all the world. You're going to make disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 1, sit your butts in Jerusalem until you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, I've given you a work to do to transform the whole globe with the gospel. But you won't do it by your own strength. You'll do it as the Holy Spirit, this is Luke's language, falls upon you. So what we find just kind of laid out in the text is that as the disciples begin to cast out demons and the 70 begin to cast out demons and the church throughout church history begins to heal the sick and cast out demons, they're doing so by the Holy Spirit that has fallen upon them. We, we talked about this last week, and again, I'm, I'll step out of doctrinal land for a second. But Jesus is, the entirety of Jesus' ministry is not just expressing or trying to validate his deity. He is God, period. And we certainly see in his ministry validation of his, of his deity, primarily in his resurrection and his glorification, and the fact that he walks on water and tells storms to sit down. He's also caring for people. And we said last week that as Jesus is being crushed by crowds, remember the scripture says he couldn't eat? He couldn't move because there were so many sick, demonically oppressed people crushing him, crushing him. And what he did was he withdrew to a mountain and he called 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority. He imparted to them authority to begin to do the works that he did. And so the heart of Jesus says, in this human flesh, I can't even touch everybody that wants to touch me. So by the spirit of God, I'm going to impart the power of the Holy Spirit to cause you to do the things that I'm doing. And the works to drive out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the gospel with clarity and unction will be done by the Spirit. So what we find again is scribes from Jerusalem saying, this man has a demon. And Jesus says, you don't even realize what's happening right now. All of hell is being emptied and you're over here whining and complaining about it. On the other hand, Jesus says, don't don't you dare mock, spit on, Harden your heart, resist, blaspheme the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And then the text leans again to show us that Jesus' family is seeking him out. Now I showed you in verse 22 that Jesus' family calls him crazy. They call him insane. They say he's lost his senses. Now here at the conclusion of our text today, 28, 29, we find that his family is seeking him out. For what? To stop him to hinder him, to, to lock him up in the room and not let him out. We, we find that his, his family has heard that the greatest Jewish teachers in the world have come and called him demonic. And they get a little embarrassed. They get a little frustrated that Jesus is uh, their brother, their son, and he's, he's, he's embarrassing the family. And so they decide that they're going to go shut him down. They're seeking him out. And Jesus' response here is beautiful. Who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my sisters? He says, looking at those sitting around him, those who do the will of God. In other words, those who get their hands dirty, driving out demons, healing the sick, caring for the poor, caring for widows, those who do evangelism, those who put put their face in the carpet and pray like I pray, those who are laboring to, 
to bring the kingdom. You're my family. These are my people. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Listen to me closely. Do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set against a man his father, and daughter against his mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the life of Jesus, Jesus in, in suffering and in pain knows what it's like to be rejected by his own family. Some of you became a Christian and your parents called you an idiot. Some of you try to really follow Jesus and your brothers and sisters call you simple or dumb. And some of you have lost a job because of your Christian faith. Some of you have lost a job because you refused to participate in an unrighteous act that your business was bringing forth. Some of you will be spit on in the days to come. You've had it easy so far. Not for long. Some of you are going to feel led to make a post on social media to share your testimony. And you're going to talk about how Jesus drove you out of darkness and into light. And all of your terror and your fear and your anxiety broke in the gospel of Jesus. And the moment you, you press post, you're going to be spit on from every side. But again, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Meaning, relational peace. If you think that Christianity is about everybody loving you, you've got it totally wrong. Meaning, if you think that you're going to become a Christian and everyone's going to think of you as Gandhi, you've got it wrong. His entire earthly ministry, he was chastised. I mean, think of his death. He goes to the cross, utterly mocked, scorned, spit on, punched whipped. And when he says, carry your cross, he is saying, crosses are heavy. Crosses lead to death. When he says, put your hand to the plow and don't look back, he's saying, do you know why he says, put your hand to the plow and don't look back? Because some of you are going to want to look back. There are going to be times in your Christian life where you want to look back. Jesus is saying, dig in anyway. And, and what I want to show you today Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That the world is going to call you foolish. But there are some being saved. And if you become so offended and intimidated, if you let the enemy cause your eyes to look over to see who's talking about you, you'll forget to look up at Jesus and you'll forget to look forward at the harvest. And if you're dumb like me, you'll think that your job is to argue down the critics. There's so many times, um, I'm not the sharpest crayon in the crayon box, but I ain't the dullest either. And there are so many times where someone comes at me or mocks me and I go, you want to talk about history? Let's talk about history. Get your books out, baby. Let's do it. And I can become consumed 
and trying to argue down those who are resisting the Holy Spirit and forget that there are, there are people waiting to hear the gospel. And this is what I want to say to you. Just a few things and we'll start to wrap up. One, let the rejection of family crush your pride. Let the insults of your coworkers strip you of your need for approval. Let the critics mock you and belittle you and let it sure up your heart to please God alone. The Holy Spirit watches people spit on you. And when you turn your head and choose to continue to pursue the gospel, he begins to sift your heart of everything in you that just wants man's praise. You can't want to glorify Jesus and want everybody's praise. You can't. You can't want to honor God with your life and want all of your family members to think you're Mother Teresa. I don't know if you know, but Mother Teresa spit on every other day. In the rejection, I was reading something from A.W. Tozer this week, and he said, um, God never uses a man he doesn't crush first. Meaning that God God causes you to walk through rejection and fire and, and turmoil. And as we walk through it, we're carrying a little bit more of the cross. I think at the beginning of your Christian life, the Holy Spirit really gives you a little boost. Right? He holds it up for you. And the longer you walk with him, he begins to let you feel a little more of the weight. And feel a little more of the weight. And again, if you're like me, you say, I hate this. This is a dumb idea, God. But, but the only way to, 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 the only way to get stronger, to grow your spirit man, is to work that thing out. And so sometimes someone starts to mock you or spit on you and you throw a, get into a tizzy and you start arguing and debating and you, and you want everyone to know that you're right and, all the while, you don't realize that the Holy Spirit's actually intending to redeem this for your own good. If you would lower your head and say, God, be my justifier. God, defend me. And just put your hand to the plow and keep pushing that there's a perseverance there. In other words, what I'm saying is stop looking around. Stop being offended. Stop letting cultures mocking and spitting rile you up. Who cares what they said on the news? There are people in Walmart who need you to pray for them. You hear what I'm saying? You get so obsessed with reposting what happened on the news last week. You don't even know those people. Come on. Get obsessed with the people in front of you who need Jesus. In other words, look away from the turmoil and start to plunder. Jesus is calling you. I felt that this week. We were praying last night. We prayed for hours last night. Um, it was beautiful. And I felt the Spirit saying that this church is going to be a plundering church. In other words, he's going to give us his power and his anointing to start stripping people from Satan's hand. Satan's greatest treasures, the people he thinks he's got really hooked, God's going to use you to strip from his grip. But listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You can't do it. You can't do it if all you want is for everyone to like you. You can't do it. Jesus' family is calling him insane, dumb. The The local Pharisees have sent for the greatest teachers of the day to come and mock him. They all call him demonic. You know what Jesus says in return? I'm plundering, man. I'm plundering. Keep doing what you're doing. Yak, talk. Have a whole council, if you will, to denounce me. I'm plundering. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet?